Seven Democratic lawmakers are pushing to blacklist multiple Chinese companies. But if the White House agrees, will Biden's plan to decarbonize the power sector suffer? The nominee for a U.S. Treasury job says he plans to curb China's global influence and gives more detail on how to achieve that goal. Vice President Kamala Harris reveals new measures for the Indo-Pacific. The U.S. is looking to expand its presence there to combat China's influence. Toward that goal, Australia meets with the leader of an island nation, one at the center of regional controversy. And experts call for more scrutiny on TikTok. That says the company faces a lawsuit over the deaths of two children. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Democratic lawmakers are questioning why some major Chinese companies are excluded from an importer blacklist. The companies mainly produce solar products. Seven lawmakers wrote a letter on Tuesday asking U.S. customs officials to explain the issue. On the blacklist are companies whose products are banned from entering the U.S. under a new law targeting forced labor in Chinese Xinjiang region. The list is tied to the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which took effect last month. Chinese authorities reportedly established forced labor camps for Uyghurs and other ethnic groups in the region. Beijing denies the accusation, saying the camps are vocational training centers used to curb what they call terrorism. The new law gives U.S. border officers decision-making power over which companies' imports should be banned. Its list currently includes several producers of solar-grade polysilicon, a raw material used to make solar panels. But three companies were left off the list, even though they were included in a report from last year, saying they had ties to forced labor in their supply chains. The letter comes as the U.S. solar sector grapples with supply chain disruptions. Those challenges have become a major headwind to President Biden's goal to decarbonize the U.S. power sector by 2035. The nominee for a crucial Treasury position in the Biden administration said he wants to limit China's global lending influence. Jay Shambaugh is President Biden's choice for Treasury Undersecretary for International Affairs. He has served as an economic advisor to the Obama administration. During his confirmation hearing before the Senate Finance Committee on Tuesday, Shambaugh explained how he plans to achieve Washington's goals. For one, he says the U.S. should work with international financial institutions and development banks. Together, they'd give other countries alternatives to borrowing from communist China. He pointed out the competition between China's state-controlled economic model and the U.S. model, driven by rule of law, transparency and free markets. Yet it, China should no longer be considered a developing country noting all developing countries are eligible for World Bank loans. Let's take a closer look at that point. Last year, the World Bank introduced a plan to lend China one to $1.5 billion every year through low interest rates. That was planned to continue for five years. The U.S. objected to the move, saying China should no longer be considered a developing country. But the World Bank didn't side with the objection. And even before that plan, the World Bank had already given China billions of dollars in aid. At the same time, the communist regime has been lending hundreds of billions of dollars to dozens of countries through its Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative. 
Experts say the project helps expand Beijing's influence on the world stage. Also in Washington, the vice president just announced measures to further engage the Pacific region. The plan features the use of diplomatic ties and financial aid. So far, U.S. allies have welcomed the move. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris participated in the Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting on Tuesday. On her schedule, announcing new measures to build stronger diplomatic ties with the region amid growing Chinese influence. We recognize that in recent years, the Pacific Islands may not have received the diplomatic attention and support that you deserve. So today I am here to tell you directly, we are going to change that. Washington's renewed engagement comes after China's having made major inroads into the region, one that sounded alarms in Western nations. A security deal with a Pacific Island nation called the Solomon Islands. The West is concerned that the deal could pave the way for a Chinese military base just a thousand miles off the coast of Australia. Beijing has tried to strike a similar deal with 10 more Pacific Island nations. Even though talks failed, the Chinese regime has hinted it would make further attempts in the future. Looking back on VP Harris's other announcements during the meeting, Washington plans to establish new U.S. embassies in Kiribati and Tonga, as well as bring the Peace Corps back to the region. The U.S. will also establish a regional mission agency in Fiji. On top of those plans, Harris voiced a new request to Congress to triple its economic assistance for the Pacific Islands. That means $600 million per year for the coming decade. And she revealed a new coordination effort between the United States, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. It's called the Partners in the Blue Pacific. Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said Wednesday that it was important the U.S. is increasing support for the Pacific region. Well, I very much welcome the increased engagement of the United States in the region. Uh, it's a, a significant support package that uh, they've announced, increased diplomatic presence, uh, increased uh, support in the form of aid, increased support in the form of infrastructure development here. Washington has pushed to speed up the opening of a U.S. embassy in the Solomon Islands. The project was announced when Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Fiji earlier this year. His was the first trip to the nation by America's top diplomat in four decades. Like the U.S., Australia is also trying to boost its ties in the Pacific. It's part of the country's efforts to counter China's influence, which it says has expanded into its own backyard. Here's more on what Canberra has been doing. Welcome. A friendly reunion between Australian Prime Minister Albanese and his Solomon Islands counterpart in Fiji on Wednesday. But one big issue continues to divide the two leaders. A security pact has come between them, one that Solomon Islands recently signed with Beijing. The pact allows Chinese naval ships to come into the region. Western democracies fear that accessibility will pave the way for China to boost military control in the region, an area largely in Australia's backyard. Before his talk with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Albanese said Australia's views on the pact were already very clear. We'd be concerned about any uh, permanent presence uh, there uh, in the Solomons and so close of course to uh, Australia and we don't think that is in the interests of, of the region. Earlier this year, Canberra described the China-Solomon Pact as Australia's worst policy failure in the Pacific since World War II. 
Australia also promised more action on climate issues and about $360 million set aside for regional aid. Though China isn't the only nation with a security pact with the Solomon Islands. Australia also has one. Under it, Australian police have been maintaining peace in the island country's capital since violence broke out last year. New Zealand also recently started work on security plans with the Solomon Islands. Both the Solomon Islands and another country in the region called Kiribati cut off their diplomatic ties with Taiwan in recent years, switching their allegiance to Beijing. Kiribati likewise pulled out of the Pacific Islands Forum last week. The move is being seen as a reflection of its deepening ties to China. Tragedy strikes social media and popular video sharing app TikTok is feeling the heat. On top of allegations that the company leaked American user data to China, TikTok now faces a lawsuit of the death of two children. NTD's Phil Zhou has the latest. The blackout challenge has been gaining popularity on TikTok recently. Users are encouraged to choke themselves until they pass out, all while filming the stunt in hopes to get some views and likes. And we as parents wonder, where did you get that from? Why are you doing that? Two young girls, ages 8 and 9, died last year after attempting the blackout challenge. Now the parents are suing the social media company, saying the TikTok algorithm pushes harmful content to children, leading to death. Omar Ochoa is a top trial attorney who's represented some of the biggest firms across the globe. I think there is a wave in this country to try to hold accountability for social media companies, both for confidentiality, privacy protections, uh, and to make sure that they're generating content that's not harmful. The lawsuit claims TikTok knew its videos are addictive, but failed to warn children and parents about them. Dr. Christopher Cortman has been a psychologist for over 36 years. He even has his own TikTok channel promoting mental health and tips on parenting. You know, when you're talking about ages 8 and 9, it is up to me as the dad, it's up to the mom to make sure that I know what's going into my child's brains, into their eyes, into their ears. Both girls who died received their first smartphones at the ages of only 7 and 8. Dr. Cortman says that's a bad idea. You know, we, we need to to not just hand them over their phones or their electronic gadgets. It doesn't take much to influence a child. It doesn't take much to traumatize a child. It doesn't take much to steer a child in a uh, pathologic direction. He says regardless if social media takes responsibility, parents have to be more aware and hands-on with their kids. Do you know what you can do? You know, I heard about this choking thing. Have you heard about this thing? Because you can kill yourself that way. And you could do brain damage to yourself. I mean, we have to give them better information. Unfortunately, sometimes that's not enough. One of the moms warned her nine-year-old daughter specifically not to ever try the blackout challenge. According to the lawsuit, the girl understood. But only one month later, the girl continued watching the videos and died from trying the challenge. TikTok, the most popular website last year, beating out even Google, says the blackout challenge was already a trend even before the platform took off, referencing a choking game that was popular in the 90s and 2000s. Phil Zoe, NTD News. With TikTok in the spotlight over that lawsuit and given other concerns about data security, experts are calling to take actions against the social media app before it's too late. Here's the latest. An official from the Federal Communication Commission recently spoke with NTD's China Insider to talk about TikTok's data security issues. He says TikTok's trove of funny shareable videos conceal its dangers, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Underneath of that, it's pulling 
biometrics, including face prints and voice prints, keystroke patterns and rhythms, search and browsing history, location information. And for years, TikTok has said not to worry, US user data is stored in the US. Uh, but it turns out now through some new revelations that much of that, and according to the reports, all of it has been finding its way back into China. So the data flow is concerning. He also warns that through each user, Beijing is amassing large stores of data and that the details could be used for purposes like espionage and blackmail. And first and foremost, I think the Federal Trade Commission should take up that bipartisan call for a swift investigation and move very quickly. We can't afford, you know, a year long uh, uh, process there. I think CFIUS at the Treasury Department needs to move as soon as possible. And I'd be encouraged and happy to have Congress step in as well. I think we need to go all, uh, all fronts there and whoever can get to the finish line fastest at this point, we need you because it's clear at this point from reports that we're leaking sensitive data right back into China. Earlier in July, bipartisan leaders from the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee pushed for an investigation into TikTok and its Chinese parent company ByteDance. That's due to repeated misrepresentations over its handling of U.S. data. For years, TikTok has repeatedly promised that it has never and will never share U.S. user data with the Chinese regime. That includes during its executive's sworn testimony before Congress. But according to leaked audio from more than 80 internal TikTok meetings obtained by BuzzFeed News, China-based ByteDance employees have repeatedly accessed non-public data tied to U.S. TikTok users. Coming up, an artificial intelligence system that can test a person's loyalty to the Chinese Communist Party. That claim comes from a group of Chinese scientists. We'll look into how it works after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Now, we head to the tech sector for a closer look at a new artificial intelligence system ahead of the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP's 20th National Congress. A special gift was presented to the regime by a group of Chinese scientists. A local national science center introduced a just-developed AI system that, according to the scientists, can examine people's loyalty to the CCP simply through their facial expressions. To do this, the AI extracts information from a person's facial visual epigenetic features, or known as EEG. That plus other details will be used to gauge how party members interact with the CCP's training program. It will reportedly indicate whether they're concentrating on or recognizing the training material they're given, and even if they're mastering it. The training is made up of a system of theories, including Marxism-Leninism and strategies from party leaders on how to rule China. News of the AI system sparked immediate buzz online. Some comments questioned the technology's accuracy, while others suggest CCP leader Xi Jinping should be tested first. Now we turn to a drill. The commanding officer of the USS Abraham Lincoln told reporters in Hawaii about how the 26-nation RIMPAC military exercises are a great opportunity to communicate. To have this many nations working together, and it is an incredible opportunity to ensure that we know how to communicate, that we're speaking the same language. By that I mean, you know, how we operate between aircraft and ships, how the ships integrate with each other. The exercise is taking place June 29th to August 4th in and around Hawaii and Southern California.
is the 28th edition of the exercises that began in 1971. The Navy calls it the largest international maritime exercise. The Navy says the purpose is to sustain cooperative relationships that keep sea lanes and oceans safe and secure. The exercises include amphibious operations, gunnery, missile, anti-submarine and air defense exercises, plus counter-piracy operations, mine clearance operations, explosive ordnance disposal, and diving and salvage operations. Five countries bordering the South China Sea are involved. Three of them have competing claims with China over ownership of sea territory. The Chinese regime has steadily built up its forces in the sea and has militarized islands there. Also in the Pacific, a critical choke point for U.S. safety, a closer look at Taiwan. What's in it for Beijing to take the island? And how would a Chinese invasion affect those on American soil? Retired Marine Colonel Grant Newsham explains. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Right now, there is still a lot of focus on the Ukraine situation, right? Russia's war there. And another party keeping a close eye is China's leader, Xi Jinping. And he's been kind of seeing how slow that invasion's been going, but also the international response. And you recently had a piece in The Diplomat talking about how that could play out. So what are some of the challenges facing Xi Jinping if he were to go after Taiwan? Well, what I wrote about in the the story is that um, the... Popular thinking is that Putin has had so much trouble in Ukraine that uh, Xi Jinping will be dissuaded because it's just so hard, and that he'll pull he'll pull back and won't go after Taiwan at least for some length of time. Uh, but looking at it, that actually I think Xi Jinping looks at what is happening in Ukraine, what is happening to Putin and Russia, and kind of thinks, well, this isn't so bad. I can probably handle it. Uh, and that's what I was, was getting at, the, the difficulties that people think he would face and that he would face if he went after Taiwan uh, would be the, just the, the military challenge of getting across the 90-mile Taiwan Strait while you're getting shot at, uh, losing ships, etc. Uh, the other would be the economic sanctions that would be put on China, the financial sanctions, uh, and also the political opposition that uh, China would face Uh, if it went after Taiwan. And this is all something that is thought to uh, dissuade Xi Jinping from giving the the launch order. Uh, And that's how it's generally viewed. But as I noted, when you look at it, and when I think when he might look at it, he might say that uh, this isn't all that bad. You know, when he looks at what is happening uh, to Putin and the Russians after they went into Ukraine in February. And so given all these different areas, there's a lot of talk kind of of when China will invade Taiwan. So in your assessment, how soon is that likely to be? Oh, it's, it's a bit like predicting who's going to win the, the Super Bowl next year. Um, it's going to be the Washington Commanders. And I would suggest from 2024 20, onward uh, that it really gets, uh, gets worrisome. That would be my take. And, and I think China is on a timeline. I don't think it's entirely opportunistic or that they don't don't have a plan. Uh, so my guess after 2024. But one thing that's worth pointing out in all of this is you ask, well, why would uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, why would they go after Taiwan? Because they know they're going to get uh, hit hard by the Americans, uh, by a lot of the Western countries. 
uh, and with particularly sanctions, financial sanctions, and uh, even political isolation. And no, that's not a good thing. You know, I don't. We shouldn't dismiss it because it does have an effect. But it does it have the effect of deterring the Chinese? Now that's doubt. That's in question. And but once it, going back to why would you do it? Why would you run that risk? Uh, plus, just uh, the actual risk of any time you attack somebody, it has a way of not turning out exactly the way you want it. And Putin has seen that in Ukraine. But uh, now I'll get to my point: is if you look at it from China's perspective, if you can bring Taiwan uh, to heel, if you can take control of it, you've accomplished several things that are really valuable. One is you have broken the so-called first island chain. This chain of islands stretching from Japan down to Taiwan, through the Philippines, down to Malaysia, and if you look at the map, these effectively hem in the Chinese military, makes it very hard for them to get into the Pacific. But take Taiwan, which is right in the middle of that chain, and you have taken strategic geography, strategic terrain. You've broken the American, the Western defenses. Uh, and that alone is is very valuable. From that uh, point, the Chinese military can start operating easily into the Pacific. Can go down to the south, isolate Australia, go up to the north, surround Japan, and it has also allowed them to put their forces into the middle of the Central Pacific, which is the center of American defenses in the Pacific. So, from a purely military operational perspective, Taiwan is really valuable. But then you also look at the political, the psychological effect of、uh, taking Taiwan, you know, bringing、uh, 23, 24 million free Chinese people into enslavement,、uh, and what message does that send? It shows that the U.S. military, with all its might, couldn't prevent it. it shows that the U.S.、Uh, uh, economic power, its financial strength, couldn't stop it, and it shows that U.S. nuclear weapons couldn't stop it as well. And now, after that happens, now who is going to take America's promises seriously? There's other countries around the world that are counting on the Americans to protect them,、uh, either explicitly or implicitly. And if Taiwan goes, well, what does that say about American commitment, about American promises, and even about American capabilities?、Uh, so it's not just a military issue. There's, I say, a political psychological aspect to this. And from Beijing's perspective. To be able to deliver that blow to U.S. credibility, while getting a, a military advantage、uh, that allows you to move farther out into the Pacific,、uh, that that just might be worth taking some risk and perhaps、uh, absorbing some of the punishment、uh, that the Americans and others might send your way.、Uh, and looking at Ukraine, you know, if, if、uh, Putin's able to handle it. Uh, then the Chinese, who think that they are infinitely superior to the Russians,、uh, they would certainly think, well, if the Russians can do it, well, we can、uh, do it even more e- more easily.、Uh, that's one way of looking at it, and I have a feeling that that just might be how the Chinese are are looking at this. Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. That's all for today's China in Focus. Thanks for watching. And before you go, here's a short glimpse into this Thursday's special report. From dancing videos to national security risks, experts say social media sensation TikTok is helping the Chinese military develop artificial intelligence. In this special report, we look at how U.S. companies are boosting China's military growth, how Americans' data is feeding China's AI mills, and how microchips are at the heart of it all.